Uh, let me add my word of thanks for your being with us and for um, the elders for providing such an opportunity and also for providing this kind of a forum where we can talk more like it's you're my class. This is a lecture and uh, we're going to have some interaction in the course of it. And I want you to be aware that I have been teaching for a long time and I can see you. And I don't allow sleeping in my class. Some of this material is a bit heavy and heavier for some than others. So I don't blame you if you had a nice big supper like I did if you start doing this. But if it gets too bad, I'm going to make you stand up. And we'll do a little calisthenics. Wake you up and then we'll start again. But thank you for being here because you knew this was going to be more science-oriented when you came, right? Everybody knew that. And you came anyway. So I appreciate it very much. I want to add another word of introduction here about this series. It's a three-lesson series that could be a 50-lesson series easily. But I have learned long since that most congregations and people of this background can handle about three of these before they just wear out. But I'm convinced that this type of a series is critically important for our stage of life. And when I say that, I mean we are in a stage where atheism is becoming more and more evangelistic. There are folks that we call the new atheists who simply promote their viewpoint very strongly and powerfully in all kinds of media. And our young people in particular are being deeply impacted by that. So I love seeing this whole row of young people and young people scattered around the audience. So thank you for that as well. So I appreciate the opportunity and let's get right at the lesson at hand. If this were being conducted in a science classroom on a college campus, which I've done numerous times, I would not be using the Bible at all. I would be using strictly the evidence from the natural world. Because I'm making this type of a lesson in a church building, I think it's appropriate for us to begin with a scriptural passage. So I want to add a little background here first, and then we're going to talk a little bit from scripture. The Bible, which of course is the foundation for Christianity, contains in it passages which say the following. Psalm 19, a familiar passage to all Bible students, says in verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. So the Bible in the psalmist's words declares that the natural world gives a testimony about God. And then the key passage that I believe is the theme passage from the Bible for this kind of a series is Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God... They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That passage teaches that you can see at least the eternal power and the divinity of God, 
from the things that are made. And so the argument that's being made in that passage is the argument I think has always been the strongest argument for the existence of God from the natural world. And that's the argument from design. When you see design, you automatically think designer. When you see architecture, you think of an architect. It's just natural conclusion. The Bible makes that statement also. So what I want to say to this audience, most of whom I'm sure are Bible believers and believers in God already, that the kind of things we're doing for the next three days are perfectly legitimate approaches to this study as the Bible itself supports. But for the remainder of my time this evening, I'm not going to be using this book. So I hope nobody takes offense at that because I'm convinced God has another book and I'll be teaching from his other book tonight. Okay? So that's the introduction for a setting like this for this kind of a series. But modern science also tells us some fascinating things. Many of the key scientists in the years of the Renaissance, of the renewal of knowledge, when Enlightenment came again after the Dark Ages. The scientists in 16 to 1800 were strong believers in God and in Jesus as the Son of God and in the Bible. And I don't have time to document that on a long extended process But I do want you to know that there are lots of texts you can go to study, if you like, and they're in the bibliography. Here is one, and it's it's formed the basis for my topic tonight, Science and Christianity, Conflict or Coherence. The author of this is Henry Schaefer. He's a world-renowned chemist, a man after my own heart. And he has been recognized highly in lots of places, taught in many major universities. But the whole purpose of this book is to show you that science and Christianity are not in conflict. There's coherence. And there's lots and lots of scientists, even in our modern times, who are believers in God. Maybe not exactly in the God you understand, but they certainly are believers in God and that there's design to be found. So here's an excellent book if you want to have support understanding that there's lots of scientists who will support the notion of design by a designer. So, I would argue, and so does he, that were it not for Christianity, science as we know it, modern science, would not have developed at all because other types of religions and certainly other approaches to life don't lend themselves to the kind of things you need principles on which science is based. And there's a very strong argument to be made that Christians helped bring science about in its modern format. All right, so here's an example or two from the world of science in the 15 and 1600s. Johann Kepler, very famous and world-renowned astronomer and a great mathematician, a man after my own heart, said things like this. I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. 
since we astronomers are the priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it benefits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather above all else, of the glory of God. Don't you love that? And he said regarding the studies of the natural world, studies of the world using science are acceptable to me and to Christians since our faith holds that the world was created by God in weight, measure, and number. That is, in accordance with the ideas co-eternal with him. And I could go on about Johann Kepler because another thing he said very openly was he believed in Jesus and to follow him and him alone and made no bones about that. So he was one of the helpers to formulate science as we know it today as we came out of the dark ages. And this name you probably recognize more than anybody is Isaac Newton, 1642 to 1727. I'm considering him one of the greatest scientists that ever lived. And here is his comment as he studied the celestial spheres and especially our solar system. Though these bodies may indeed continue in their orbits by the mere laws of gravity. And by the way, you know that Newton was credited with explaining gravity mathematically and describing it that way. We still don't know, folks, what gravity is. But you can describe it, and you can describe it mathematically. And may I take a little sidelight here and preach to you a little bit? Mathematics, folks, is the queen of the sciences. And when you've been able to take natural phenomenon and describe them with mathematics, you've never gotten closer to thinking God's thoughts after him. And especially is that the case with the mathematics of the calculus, only the most important class you'll ever take. And that's because the calculus is a study of infinity. And the analysis of infinity. And how do you get closer to God and his thinking than that? But Newton is credited with describing gravity mathematically. And by the way, in that age when he first did that, they thought he was a voodoo guy because gravity is something between two objects that are a distance from one another. And how in the world does that happen? How do you affect something at a distance from you? And according to the principle, it is based on the mass of the objects. They interact with one another at a distance. Don't get me started on that. But it was considered mystical. And so he would say, though we believe and these orbits may continue by the laws of gravity, yet they could by no means have at first derived the regular position of the orbits themselves from these laws. Thus, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. He said in the general scolium of his most important work, the Principia. This is one of the most brilliant scientists of all time. And I could quote you from many others from that time frame during that age of the Renaissance. 
And when it came then to the early 1800s, the late 1700s, by this time it had become a very popular thing to talk about the evidence of God from the natural world. And so William Paley wrote a text that was used in college classes very commonly in those days. Charles Darwin sat in on this class when he was in college, as was common for all college students in those times. And one of the things about this book, it started out with a famous watchmaker argument. So I'm going to read it to you here with a British accent, okay? You're in school in England in the early 1800s. In crossing a heath, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it had lain there forever. Nor would it perhaps have been very easy to show the absurdity of this answer. But suppose I had found a watch on the ground, and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. I should hardly think of the answer which I had before given, that the watch might have been there forever but rather that the watch must have had a maker. And he proceeds then to make the argument that the natural world presents us with numerous situations like the human body, which has things much more complex than a watch, which speak then to a maker for things that are living in the natural world. So the watchmaker argument became very famous in the 1800s. By the end of the 20th century, ladies and gentlemen, in which most of us were alive, we ended up with statements like the following from Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists, a British evolutionary biologist, author, and professor of public understanding of the sciences. This man, ladies and gentlemen, presents himself as one who is going to explain to the public the sciences and get us to understand them properly. He said in his book, The Selfish Gene, in 1976, faith is blind trust. Let me interrupt this quote here just a moment to tell you that the concept by the new atheist is that faith and science do not coexist. They cannot be in the same place. Faith, he says, is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. It is a process of non-thinking, so this gentleman says with his extremely biased viewpoint. And may I add, biblical faith and faith as I understand it is not at all as he describes it. It is evidence-based faith. And that's what God demands in the Bible, if you're a student of the Bible, not blind trust. In his book, The God Delusion in 2006, he goes much farther and among other things, he said, if this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. And that's his avowed goal. I said to you earlier, the new atheists are evangelistic. Why in the world one would want to evangelize someone to be an atheist is beyond me. 
but that's exactly what's happening. And I'm suspecting that it's partly because they've had some horrible experiences with religious folks and maybe with religion itself in their past would be my guess. God is a delusion, he says, a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. I would describe that as hateful and not helpful at all to any discussion. But that's the kind of comments we're getting in the 20th and 21st centuries. So what in the world happened? It's not the way science began. The Cosmos series by Carl Sagan expresses it well. The cosmos is all that is, all that was, or all that ever will be. Carl Sagan and his Cosmos series presented one of the most popular science series ever in the history of the modern world. And that's how it started. And may I say to you, class, that that statement is not a scientific statement at all. It's a statement of philosophy. You can't prove that statement using the methods of science. That's a philosophy statement. And it undergirds everything that this gentleman presented, as it does so many of the scientists today who are claiming there is no God. But that's where we've gotten. And the question is, how did we get there? And so... How did things change in 200 years so radically? So for the next few minutes, I want to give you a brief history lesson that deserves a lot more time than I'm going to give it. But there's a reason for this, and it is because scientists started to arise like Pierre-Simon de Laplace, who complained, I mean, he, he imagined himself as another Isaac Newton, and he was far from it in my view. But he looked at the same evidence Newton looked at, and he said, nature with its matter, energy, and forces could produce and maintain our solar system. There's no need for a God hypothesis. And so the beginning of the trend in the late 1700s and early 1800s to say, while these other scientists are saying God is clearly needed and is the explanation, we don't need such a hypothesis. And so Charles Lyell and his principles of geology would say the present is the key to the past. You don't need any further explanation for what happened in the old times. And he believed many, 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 many millions of years and provided a basis for Darwin to count for the origin of life and living things because of the long ages. There's no need for God in geology according to Lyle. And then, of course, Darwin and the Origin of Species presented first in 1859. In his book, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. And I'm pausing there just a moment for you to understand that a part of the result of that document besides its impact on every dimension of life. I don't know if there's a book that's had more impact on humanity than that other than the Bible because it's affected everything. Our whole worldview has been turned upside down. But do you notice the preservation of favored races 
was a part of what came out of this. Because, of course, natural selection is going to pick those that are most likely to survive, which means the favored races. And all of you know, because you're on this side of history, of what happened in the 1900s, it was the period of the greatest amount of wars and death and killing ever in the history of mankind. And a great portion of that came as the result of the atheists, rulers, and systems that developed out of that. Plain and simple. No need for a designer to account for the origin of species of life. Natural selection, acting on natural variation, accounts for the appearance of design. What appears to be designed really wasn't. It could have been done naturally by natural selection. So the origin of species doesn't need God. And then Alexander O'Paran and J.B.S. Haldane came up with a theory in the early 20th century that there's no need for God to produce life from non-life either. And so now, from the beginning to the end, there is no need for God anywhere. And when you try to introduce that, you've stepped out of science, according to these men. So what's happened is the founders of science, firm, convicted believers in God, not only from the Bible, but from the evidence of the natural world, God's other book, we now have reached a point where the scientists who dominate this world are saying, if you even suggest God, you're a delusion. I say, beloved, it's time to revisit the argument from design. And there are lots of reasons for that. But I want to share a few with you tonight. So we're going to revisit. But before we do, I want to tell you a little personal information here. I lived through this, folks, as a college student in the middle 1900s. I'm not the age of Noah, as some people think. But in the 1950s and 1960s, it was a heady time for atheists because things were being discovered and unfolded about our understanding of the natural world that made scientists believe we're going to reach a point soon where we've got all this figured out. And we're going to know how life came about without God. We're going to know all the features of life and it's all be figured out. And the more we know, the less we need God. And you God believers, as I was told in class, had better get over it. Because your God is losing credibility. So I'm telling you, I have personal interest in this. And if I get a little bit passionate, you can forgive me because so does Richard Dawkins. He gets very passionate as he proclaims his vile teachings against faith and trust in God. These folks take philosophy and turn it into science, supposedly. So I want to read you a quote from a professor of English and a college advisor at Northwestern. Not many folks will be this straightforward. 
There are many colleges and universities, ladies and gentlemen, in this country and around the world that are full of professors like this. The children of the red states will seek a higher education, and that education will very often happen in blue states or in blue islands in red states. For the foreseeable future, loyal ditto heads will continue to drop off their children at the dorms. After a teary-eyed hug, mom and dad will drive their SUV off toward the nearest gas station, leaving their beloved progeny behind, and then they are all mine. And I could read you more, but I can tell you the avowed purpose of some in universities in our country and around the world is to take children that are put into their care and help them to get free of the anti, the homophobic views of their parents and of their religion and free them of that. Part of my passion for speaking about this topic is because I personally faced things like that and didn't know how to deal with it. I want folks to know, especially young folks, that there's somebody who studied this in depth and has come out the other end a stronger believer in God than ever. And if you don't understand all the depths of what we're going to talk about the next three days, then dig a little deeper, keep your mind open, and know that there are folks still today who, with all the things we've learned, are convicted there's a powerful evidence for God in the natural world. And don't listen to just one side. All right. So here we go, class. Stephen Meyer is one of my favorite authors. He has written three major volumes. I call them his trilogy. And I have the third one in my hand. His first one was Signature in the Cell, 2009. His second was Darwin's Doubt. Signature in the Cell deals with the chemical structure inside cells, particularly the DNA. And we'll talk about that tomorrow night at some length. Darwin's Doubt deals with the fossil record and the explosion of all kinds of life forms in the Cambrian layer, which is hard to account for from the evolutionary view. So it's a phenomenal uh, book on the origin of life. And then finally, this one, The Return of the God Hypothesis, is a takeoff on what Laplace said. We don't need the God Hypothesis. And his argument is, it's time for a return of the God Hypothesis. And he bases that on three major discoveries in the last century and a half or less. And here they are. The evidence have become overwhelmingly strong that number one, the universe, space, matter, and time had a beginning. I can tell you the notion of that does not suit an evolutionist very well. They want nature to be eternal so they don't have to explain any kind of a beginning. But the evidence from the natural world has piled up, folks, that points to a beginning. That is not my subject for tonight. Get the book and read it. 
The second major point is the universe and our solar system and earth are remarkably fine-tuned to support life on earth and have been since the beginning. This evidence I want to spend some time with you on. And it has evolved over the last hundred years to a point that it's overwhelming, folks. It is very clear. And if this were a court of law and you were the jury, I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it really is not anything even my opposing attorney could argue with. The evidence is too strong. So I'm going to present it to you in, some, in summary tonight. The question is, what does it mean? I would argue strongly that things sure look like they were fine-tuned for life here on earth to exist. How did all that come about? And by the way, how many of those do you need, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to give up the notion that this was all a natural coincidental thing? For me, I reach a point where that just doesn't cut it anymore. And thirdly, even the simplest forms of life at the biochemical level contains massive amounts of digital information being used to produce and maintain an untold number of molecular machines and complex processes. We're going to touch on that tonight toward the end, and then we'll dig in more deeply tomorrow night, God willing, on argument number three. This is overwhelming, folks. There is no evidence that information comes from any place except intelligent sources, but it's everywhere. Those three arguments together present a huge reason for reopening the discussion of design because they all point to a designer. So we're going to skip number one, but we're going to spend some time with number two and a part of number three tonight. All right, here we go. Let's start with this book, The Goldilocks Enigma, Why is the Universe Just Right for Life, says Paul Davies, 2008. Paul Davies is an atheist. He's an evolutionist, but he does not argue against the Goldilocks Enigma. Now, may I remind you of Goldilocks? So, kids, can you help me? Goldilocks went into the what? into the woods <laughs> and found the house of the three bears. Good. Thank you. Help me out, kids. The three bears. And she decided to go in the house, didn't she? And she went to the table. And what did she find? Soup. Soup. The book says porridge, I think, doesn't it? Porridge. That's really soup. <laughs> That's right. Keep me straight. And so she went to one bowl of soup, and it was Papa's soup, right? And it was too. So she went to the next bowl of soup, and it was Mama's soup, and it was too cold, right? And then she went to Baby's soup, and it was just right, just right. Now, class, you need to remember that answer because we're going to talk about that a lot. The reason he called his book The Goldilocks Enigma is because everywhere you look, things have to be just right. And why is that? That's the question. Why is that? 
And how is that possible? One of the most significant facts, he says, arguably the most significant fact about the universe is that we are a part of it. How did we get here, class? That's the question. We're one of the most amazing things in the universe in terms of our functioning. Everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it was designed for life. There isn't any argument about that. Folks just have a different explanation. They say, man, it looked like it was designed, but it wasn't. And you're going to see that over and over again. But Davies at least is honest enough to admit that. When I was a student in the 1960s, scientists had discovered two characteristics of the cosmos and eight to ten of the solar system that sure looked like they were fine-tuned. Well, folks, two and eight to ten, uh, maybe those are all just coincidence. So it wasn't a real powerful, overwhelming argument then. In the 2000s, look where we are. There are at least 38 different characteristics of the cosmos and over 150 of the solar system and its surroundings, all of which seem to point to fine-tuning. So what was two to like 12 now is 180. So I say to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, 180 different things that all are fine-tuned, would you argue that that's somebody messing with this? This wasn't normal, natural phenomenon. So let's talk about a few of these. Foundational fine-tuned factors. So I want to introduce you to another book, which I'd highly recommend you get. It's called God's Crime Scene by J. Warner Wallace. J. Warner Wallace was an atheist. His daddy was an atheist. They were both policemen. They turned into detectives. And one of J. Warner Wallace's jobs was to detective cold cases. You know what that means? What does that mean? A cold case. And they, couldn't solve they couldn't solve it. It's been a long time. It's one of the hardest ones to solve. It's a case that's become cold. But that's the kind of detective he was. Over time, as he worked that business and looked at evidence, he became a believer in God. And he wrote this book to hopefully convince his daddy. And to this day, he never has. But it was an effort. So I want to share with you just a little bit out of this book as we start talking about this fine-tuning business. Because chapter two, every book, every chapter in this book is built around a case that he solved. So I'm going to read you a little bit. You ready? Class, we're going to have a reading. And I'm watching you. You can't fall asleep. Helen knew something was wrong when her daughter Carrie failed to answer the door. It was a bright summer afternoon. Carrie said she'd be home and the car indeed was parked in the driveway. Helen tried to peek in through the living room window, but the curtains were unusually drawn. Carrie never locked the back door, but when Helen walked into the backyard of the old home, she found the door locked and all the windows closed. This was not like Carrie. She usually left one badly torn rear window slightly ajar. 
not this time. Helen began to panic. She knew Todd and Carrie had a tumultuous marriage, one that included physical violence. Todd had moved out, but Helen still feared for her and her daughter's safety. You see, the couple had a child named Lexi. But the violence had only intensified since her birth. A week ago, Todd had threatened to kill Carrie. And just last night, Carrie confided there had been yet another fight. When Helen could not get Carrie to answer the door this afternoon, she decided to call the police. Our officers responded and met Helen on Carrie's porch. And what I will tell you is, when they got in, they smelled gas, and they called the hazmat team. And when they finished cleaning out the place, and they got up to the second floor bedroom, they found Carrie and Lexi dead. And the question was, did they die a natural death, or did somebody tamper with this? And what J. Warner Wallace would tell you as a detective, I always started this way. The crime happened here, and in this case inside a house, if it was a crime. Can you explain everything that's in this house by staying inside the house? Or do you have to look outside for some interfering evidence? So they started investigating. I'm not going to. I will tell you the end result of it was the series of circumstantial evidence piled up, regional and locational evidence, and Todd was convicted of first degree murder on the accumulation of the evidence. And I want to read you a little bit about what he said about that. We were compelled to examine the evidence of tampering because of one important fact. There were dead bodies in the crime scene. In a similar way, when we look at the nature of our universe, the existence of living bodies ought to provoke an investigation. Are you with me? Like our murder scene, there are foundational, regional, and locational conditions that demand explanation. The foundational laws of physics, the regional properties of our solar system, the local conditions of our planet resulted in our existence. But did this have to be the case? If circumstances had been slightly different in Carrie's house, no one would have died that night. The conditions had to be just so in order for them to be dead. In a similar way, if circumstances had been slightly different in our universe, no one would be alive today. Conditions had to be just so for the outcome to be life. That's the argument. The just so appearance of fine-tuning of our universe is rather uncontroversial among scientists and cosmologists. He quotes Paul Davies. Everyone agrees it looks like it. So what's the evidence? In the case of Todd, give you a couple of other things they found out. He had had the gas turned on just the week before in their house. They never used gas, but he had it turned on. 
In addition to that, at the bottom of the stairs, there were clothes stuffed all into that opening as you go up the stairs. Carrie never would have done that. In addition to that, there was background information of his threatening to kill her. The combination of evidences added up to convict him of first-degree murder. And Wallace's argument is the combination of foundational, regional, and locational evidence in our natural world is more than sufficient to convince you somebody tampered with this. This did not happen by natural causes. You get the argument? All right, so here we go. Laws of nature, physical constants and ratios, the properties of the elements and the properties of chemicals. There are four items up there that each should take the next six months to explain. But I'm telling you, there are properties for all of those that are so finely tuned that everybody knows have to be, say it, just right. That was terrible. Let's try it again. For the laws of nature, there are lots of factors that have to be Exactly, and if they're not just right, you wouldn't be here. And that is indisputable. The same is true for physical constants and ratios. Let me just tell you one, just to give you an example. In the same chapter 2, he talks about some of the evidence that's available to us. There's the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, the force of gravity... And they all have to be within a very narrow range or you wouldn't be here. It's like somebody had dials on a machine with lots of dials and every dial has to be set within one or two degrees or nothing happens. The ratio between the electromagnetic force and gravity has, cannot be altered more than one in 10 to the 40th. That didn't sink in. In the first place, you have no clue what 10 to the 40th is. But if you moved one out of 10 to the 40th different than what it is, you wouldn't be here. So he tries to give you some idea of what that means. So here you go. Here's your illustration. Imagine covering the entire North American continent in dimes and stacking them until they reach the moon which is only 250,000 miles away. Picture this, stacks of dimes from the earth to the moon that cover the North American continent. Now imagine stacking as many dimes again on another billion continents of the same size as North America. If you marked one of those dimes and hid it in the billions of piles you'd assembled, the odds of a blindfolded friend picking out the correct dime is approximately 1 in 10 to the 40th. That's the same level of precision required in the ratio between the electromagnetic and the force of gravity. Change it that much, you wouldn't be here. Now, folks, that's one. In that list over there, you've already got about 100 that are just that fine-tuned. Don't believe me. You can go look it up. Even an atheist will tell you that. 
And they somehow believed that it could have happened anyway without a designer. Let's now talk about regional. This, we're getting down to where we live. Those things I told you about are foundational, and, and they're, they're really for the whole universe. Now we're getting down to our place where we live. We live in a galaxy. Class, tell me what galaxy we live in. Yeah, good. We call it the Milky Way galaxy because when you look up across the sky, there's this band that looks almost like milk, right? Well, you have to live in some kind of a galaxy. And so what I want to show you tonight, you ready? All right. First of all, I want to show you a picture. And before I show it to you, everybody's eyes up here. If you were to look up into the sky, imagine we're outside and you're looking up into the sky and you hold your hand out with the tip end of your finger and imagine looking up there and the tip end of that finger is the little piece of the sky we're going to be looking at. Okay? That little piece that would be transcribed by the tip end of your finger. Are you with me, everybody? The picture I'm going to show you is taken by the James Webb telescope that was just put up in space not long ago. You were all alive when that happened. Happened this last summer. (laughs) And there was a picture made of that one little piece that that happened to be focused on at that time. And it's the first picture that was displayed to the world by President Biden recently. Maybe you saw it. I want you to see it in the dark. So everybody, hold on to your kids because it's going to get really dark in here. But I want you to be dark before we show this. So I can click it myself, right? Is that all the lights you can possibly get off? Close that door back there. (laughs) There's a light in the hall. I don't want any light. All right, here we go. This is almost like seeing the sky in the middle of the desert. There's not a lot of um, city lights. I'm just giving you a minute to look at that. Isn't that incredible? And you think, isn't that an amazing star? No, class, that is a galaxy that has probably three billion stars in it. That's another galaxy. That's a galaxy. This is a galaxy. All these bigger blobs, those are galaxies. Those are not stars. You see that one right there? That's a spiral galaxy. Isn't that beautiful? It happens to get a head-on picture, that looking top-down. But there aren't very many of those in here. Okay, lights back on so I don't run over something. Now, that is a picture made called the Galaxy Cluster of SMAX 0723 from the James Webb Telescope, July the 12th, 2022. That's one little spot in the galaxy. I mean, in the universe. (laughs) Imagine how many galaxies and stars there are all over the universe. 
So what a modern-day atheist would tell you, you think you are of any significance? You're on one little planet around one star, and you're nothing? And it's come to be called the Copernican Principle, because Copernicus is the one that took the sun and put it in the center instead of the earth, right? So we were removed from the center of God's focus to a little planet circling a star and not a very important star at that. And you think you have any significance? And Cosmos Carl would say to you, if you think there's some God coming to save you, you're fooling yourself. You got to save yourselves. That's the argument. But we, ladies and gentlemen, live in a spiral galaxy. And that number's wrong up there. I meant to have you change that number. I almost want you to do it right now. It says only about 10% of galaxies are spiral. It's really more like 5%. Only about 5% of all the galaxies in the universe are spirals. But I will tell you, class, and we know this well, a planetary system like ours that supports life on earth cannot exist in other kinds of galaxies. It needs to be a spiral galaxy. So that eliminates about 95% of all those I showed you as a place that could support life on a planet like ours around the sun. Don't believe me? Go look it up for yourself. Now, we've got the galaxy right. You've got to be at the right place in the galaxy, folks. If I look at the galaxy from the side, you have this big bulge in a spiral galaxy in the center. If our sun was in there, there'd be no life, folks. There'd be such a, a gravitational force. If there were any planets, they'd smash into the sun in microseconds. No, you have to be on these two balloon areas right out here, these donuts, this is where the planet would, or the sun would have to be to support planetary life in any spiral galaxy. Well, that eliminates approximately 149 out of 150 parts of the galaxy. So once you get in the right galaxy, you've got to get in the right place in the galaxy. You with me, ladies and gentlemen of the jury? The percentage of the places in that galaxy where you could support life is very small. That's indisputable. But then you have to have the right kind of star. Just any old star will not do, folks. Just because you're in the right place in the galaxy doesn't mean you're going to have life. You've got to have the right star. So may I apologize to our star? for the miserably incomplete job I'm going to do in explaining this to you? I'll try. Here's our sun compared to the planets. It's a pretty big object, isn't it? But if you compare the sun to other stars like Sirius and Pollux and Arcturus, see the sun down here? And we're not finished. Watch. What if you compare it to Rigel and Aldebaran and Betelgeuse and Antares? Where's the sun? Right there. Can't you see it? You can't even see it. 
Folks, the sun is an average-sized star that's a lot smaller than a whole lot of stars. And then there's a bunch of dwarf stars, a whole lot smaller than our sun. Guess what? Our sun is terrible. Are you awake? Our sun is exactly in its size, in its temperature, in the amount of energy it puts off on a regular basis, and in a hundred other things, it's just right. Exactly right. Got to have the right star. But that's not enough, folks. You got to have the right planet in the right place. So here's our planets around our particular star. You think there could be life on Jupiter, people? You're fooling yourself. Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, they're all way too big. And how about uh, Pluto? By the way, is Pluto a planet? I got no and I got yes. <laughs> and that, again, depends on who you talk to, doesn't it? Mercury is a good one, but it's really tiny, isn't it? It's too small. So it is, isn't it? Our moon's huge, folks. I'll get back to that in a minute. There are only three planets, really, that fall into the range that they need to be. The Earth, what do you think that one is? No, that's Venus, and this is Mars. So why aren't they looking for life on Venus? Anybody know? There aren't any spaceships going to Venus to look for life. Anybody know why? Say it again. Nope, it's not made out of gas. You're thinking of others. Say it again. Nope, it's in the habitable zone. What's the matter with Venus? There's no water, that's for sure. It's a weird planet, that's what. It's strange. You wouldn't want it as a friend. Its atmosphere is mostly sulfuric acid. This is not healthy. And it's rotating backwards from anything else in this planetary system. It's just a messed up planet. And nobody's looking for life on Venus because there are other problems. And where are we looking for life? Mars. And that's because there's some hope that they may find some tiny, teeny bit of some water that might have existed sometime or another. And why is that? You can't have life without water. Not any life we know anything about. And by the way, we don't know anything about any life but what's right here. Period. But Mars has its problems, too. So, out of all of our planets, how many would you count? One. But then you got to get the location right, right? So it has to be in the habitable zone. Or it'll be too hot or too cold, and it has to be? Just right. And is the location of our Earth just right? Yes, it is. Well, one could argue, well, isn't that a coincidence? In fact, so what some scientists say, well, it had to be somewhere, and we just happened to get lucky that we're on the one that's in the just right zone. Well, you can only say that so many times, people, <laughs> and be considered a rational, reasonable person. And we've already run out of those, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, in my view. But we're not done yet by a stretch. 
What about locational factors closer to us? Look, the proper mass, spin, tilt, moon, atmosphere, and crust all have to be right within a very narrow range for this planet. And they are, interestingly enough. Isn't that a coincidence? And the properties of biochemicals like DNA and proteins, etc., And the cells and the genetic code and molecular machines, which I'm going to talk about a little bit in just a minute. You add all up, class, and what you have is one of the most remarkable facts that we've discovered about nature. The entire nature looks like it's fine-tuned to support life right here on earth. How'd that happen? And what's the most reasonable explanation for such a complexity of variables, all of which point to one thing? I say you have to not want to believe it because that puts faith in there, doesn't it? I have to tell you the story. The, the scientists I've talked to do not want any, don't, they don't want any talking about faith or belief. No, ours is facts and science. Yours is faith and religion. So I had this discussion on the University of Maine's campus one time. It's been many years ago now. And we had over 200 evolutionists in the room and about 10 of us who were believers. <laughs> it was a good one because we had lots of good Q&A. And there was one professor there who was a professor of biology named Professor Cornfield. Is that a good name for a biology teacher? And mine is Professor Payne. Is that a good name? <laughs> so we abused each other a lot during the course of that discussion just for fun. I've been called a pain in about everything you can imagine. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Cornfield would get up and say things. By the way, I didn't tell you why we had so many people there. It had been advertised on the campus, and it turned out the president that year was a Mormon. And when he saw that advertisement, he wrote an instruction to all his science and philosophy fa faculty members, said, you go and take your students with you. And they all showed up. And by the way, they came back the next night too. So it was a great thing. But Dr. Cornfield was, of course, professing in front of his students things that I was trying to say in exact opposition. And he had to defend himself. I get that. But he also would say to us, look, science is not faith. Science is evidence-based. Science is factual. And what you're presenting is a religious viewpoint. This ID movement is religiously based, and we can't have that in science. And I said to him, Dr. Cornfield, I hate to disabuse you, sir, but your entire system is based on faith. At some point, you have to believe what you're telling me because there's a point where evidence stops and you have to fill in the gap. And that's where faith comes in. And by the way, the Bible calls that, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You have to have that in any system at all. Every system about original origins of the universe is a system of faith. Based on evidence, never bought into that. The last night in the last lecture, he made another comment. He said, now, Professor Payne, I believe. 
and he caught himself. And I said, thank you, Professor Cornfield. You made my entire series because that's exactly right. And you believe it with all your heart. And I'm sorry you're having trouble seeing the true facts that undermine your belief. And we're not finished, class, because there's a whole lot more that ought to be said about all of these. So, you're going to stick with me, right, a few more minutes. Are you okay, or do I need to make you stand up? Are you okay? All right, you're nodding your head. Let's talk about the cell for just a little bit. Darwin thought the cell was a blob of albuminous carbon. What we've learned in the last hundred years is it's a, it's a massive machine made up of all kinds of amazing molecular machines. So I just want to show you a little tidbit of this, okay? We're going to go fast. <laughs> There's the nucleus that contains the DNA, most of it. Here are ribosomes out here. We're going to talk more about this tomorrow night. The rough endoplasmic reticulum and all kinds of other working things inside there. Did you know, class, that cells divide automatically and make two cells? You did, didn't you? That's called mitosis. It happens all the time. Did you know that today you lost about 50 billion cells because they divided? And many of them died and then others divided. If you didn't have cells dividing in your body at a rate of billions per minute, you're dead. So these cells divide, and they produce a copy of themselves automatically. Isn't that interesting? Did you know that they have built in a mechanism for fixing if they make a mistake in the corrections? I mean, in the copying? There's some methods built into that cell to correct mistakes. That's interesting, isn't it? Looks like a design to me. Here's some things I want to show you about size. We're looking at a meter here. Meter's about this long from the tip of this finger to the tip of that finger. That's a meter. A kilometer is a thousand of those. A Millimeter is one one thousandth of that length. Okay? A micrometer is one one, say it. What is that? One one, no, that's one one millionth. It's a millionth of a meter. And a nanometer is one, what do you think? Billionth of a meter. So look at me here, class. From here to here is a meter. Divide that up into one billion equal parts, and you have a nanometer. That's getting down to the size of atoms and DNA, okay? So let me show you a chart here of some things that are different sizes. A frog egg is about one millimeter, a little bigger than one millimeter. So you can see it. A paramecium is about 30 micrometers. Chromosomes are 1 to 10. A biological cell is 10 to 100 micrometers. That's 10 to 100 millionths of a meter. And you can see those through an optical microscope. You can see down here the kind of opti optical microscopy will show you these things. 
But you get smaller than that when you get to bacterium and adenovirus and antibodies and DNA and molecules. Now you're going into electron microscopy and down here x-ray crystallography. That's how you see these things. But most of that cannot be seen by the human eye or even by an optical microscope. So we're dealing with things we can't literally see with our eyes. We have to have help. Okay? What's a molecular machine? It's a natural device on the molecular scale, that is nanometers, able to convert chemical energy and produce linear or rotary motion as well as controlling many biological functions. It's a machine at the nano level that does amazing things. And what we've discovered in the last 70 years class is your body is full of those everywhere you look. So here are three may I introduce you to. I introduce you to myosin, the first one discovered. It, it involves the contraction of muscles. It's one large molecule that keeps your muscles and helps them contract. Much more to say about that. But I want you to be introduced to kinesin and dynein walkers. You see, one of the things they're involved in is cell division. And that's what I want to show you next. May I repeat? This day, you lost about, some people say 30 to 50 billion cells. You know your skin cells die out all the time? That's why you got to take a bath, kids, every day. Because <laughs> you're sloughing off dead cells all the time. And so there's lots of division taking place all the time between cells. So I want to introduce you to a gentleman. Well, that's not the gentleman. <laughs> this is the kinesin walker. That's a protein right there that's carrying something. You see that? And he's walking along this highway. That's why he's called the kinesin walker. He literally walks along carrying stuff that's about a thousand times as big as he is. Incredible. That's happening all the time in your cells while you're sitting there. I hope you ate your proteins tonight. I did. Here's Drew Berry, biomedical animator. This guy makes things come alive with animation that you can't see, except through electron microscopes and X-ray crystallography. But he makes it come alive, and he's amazing. So I want to take one of his tonight. We're going to use him again tomorrow night and so if you want to look at something fascinating, you go to his website, Drew Berry, and look up his stuff. It's amazing. All right, so here we go. Here's a Drew Berry. What did I do? <laughs> My man back here has to save me. Can you get me back? Okay, good. Here is a live cell dividing while you watch. This is under a microscope, an optical microscope, and it's speeded up a little bit. So you can see it taking place. So there you see the DNA dividing. It's got exact copies made, and it eventually splits out. And the one cell closes up and becomes two cells. See that? You just watch the cell divide. That happens in your body all the time. It's an amazing process. There's a lot going on in there. So now we're going to proceed on. We're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to watch this again. Only this time we're going to focus in on one piece of that chromosome right here. You'll see it. This piece right here. And uh, it's going to stop for me, right? There, good. 
This is the metaphase chromosome. Notice there are two copies of it already. Your body makes two exact copies of the DNA. Folks, that process, if I had time to tell you the chemistry of how that happens, it would blow you away. Besides that, you wouldn't understand it. <laughs> but it's amazing. But it's already happened that it's copied itself. Now the question is, how can you get it divided? Well, that takes a machine, people. So we're going to close in now. Let's go ahead. We're going to close in now and watch what happens here. Here, it's, There are two copies. Now, what are we going to do? You see that area right there? That's called, I'm waiting for the kinetic core. See the little reddish area? It's kinetic because it's active. It's core. It's because it's the key to getting all this to happen. It's this thing right here that's going to direct the uh, division. And you see these lines coming out here? Those are highways, class. We call them microtubules, and your body builds them all the time. Can I throw in a little plug here? There are proteins. They're building highways in your system all the time, and they have to build them so little guys can walk along, and other things can happen that make things happen in your body. But once they're built, they have to be torn down, just like any good government builds the highways, and then you got to tear them up, right? Well, in your body, you have to tear them up because if you left all those microtubules, your, car, your cell would be all clogged up. So at the other end of the highway, there's stuff tearing it down as fast as you make it. And guess what, class? I'm going to tell you the answer. Proteins. What do you think builds the highways? Say it. What do you think tears them down? Exactly right. So now we're going to get down in there closer, and we're going to show you what happens. So here we go. You ready? Move it. All right, we're going to focus in now on the kinetic core. Watch as he kind of closes in on it. Here's Drew Berry's name up here. You see that? A giant molecular machine that controls chromosome movement. I say, amen. Go. Now we're going to close in on the kinetic core. You can see all these macrotubules coming out from both sides. And as we close in, this thing turns kind of reddish. It really doesn't, but he does that in his animation to make it look pretty. Plus, to let you know, there's a lot of activity going on in here. So microtubule attachment, you see that? They're building this road right here from this end. At the other end, they're tearing it down. And there's lots of other activities taking place in here by proteins. Move it. Stop right there. <laughs> Did you see the words tensing? You see what's happening in here is the proteins are counting down till it's time for that thing to divide. There is a process by which they can regulate the timing of it. That's another chemical issue, which I'd love to tell you about. But we proceed. Go ahead. You see all these little things moving around in here? I mean, there's activity going on everywhere. It's incredible. We don't even have time to begin to think about what all's happening, except I want to focus in on these microtubules and the processes being built up here to the point where we're ready to go. And red means stop. Green means go, right? So it all turns green. Stop right there. No, it does not turn green, class. Drew Berry did that in his animation just to make it look pretty. But what does it mean? It means you've reached a time when all those proteins are saying the time now is for you to start pulling these apart. And what I want you to see 
is coming out of that, you're going to see a bunch of little proteins starting to walk along these highways. So watch. Here come the dining walkers. See them? Carrying proteins. And here are the kinesin walkers going the other way. Kinesins go backwards. Dinings go this way. And they each have their important function. There's several other kind of guys moving also. If you watch closely and you see these blue guys right here, they have a critically important part to keep those highways straight and functioning properly while all this important activity takes place. And now when the timing is right and all these little guys are running up and down this highway until it's time for these guys to split apart and separate into two different magnificently designed cells. And now we're going to watch it again under an optical microscope. But you know now, class, that down inside here, there's all kinds of stuff happening you can't see through an optical microscope that involve molecular machines. And there are thousands of others doing all kinds of other stuff in the cell at the same time. And nobody runs into each other. Next slide. May I introduce you to Dr. James Tour, professor of nanoengineering at Rice University, world-renowned. I believe he's one of the best in the world, if not the best. Incredible. He's a Messianic Jew. And you can go to his website and read why he believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you know why? Because he became convinced of the resurrection. And he would tell you, if you're a non-believer, go look up the evidence for the resurrection of Christ and you'll become a believer. Don't you love that? He's alive right now. He's another Newton as far as I'm concerned. And he's done amazing things with nanoengineering, which I had the time to tell you. Amazing things for medicine. I have to tell you one. They took a mouse and slit his spinal cord, cut it, severed it. They inserted some little carbon, one cell-wide carbon pieces that he helped to design in that thing that connected it back together. And evidently, that allowed the nerves on both sides to start growing together again. And that little mouse came to be 90% efficient walking after they severed his spinal column. Nanoengineering. He decided in the midst of all this to have some fun. So he decided to build some nano cars. That's cars made out of one molecule. How in the world do you do that? Very complicated. And here's one that he built. See the four wheels, the chassis. Here's the rotor that helps drive it. All made out of chemicals. That's one big chemical. That's a nano car, folks. And here's a picture of it riding on gold. These little things have a rotator right here that rotates and makes the actual ac action take place. So you can activate it with chemicals or with light. And they can make these little cars. Well, of course, there's people all over the world now trying to do this. And so coming out of that, of course, you've got to have a race, right? 
So the first international nano car race took place on April the 28th and 29th, 2017 in Toulouse, France. We almost need a drum roll for this. Enrolled in this race were Austrian U.S. teams of University of Graz and Rice. This is Dr. Tour's team right here. And then France, Germany, Japan, Switzerland, and another U.S. university up in that unknown state of Ohio. Rice is in Texas, you know that. The promised land. I'm a Texan, folks, in case you didn't know. Well, they had a race, folks, and I want to announce to you that the Austrian-U.S. team, sponsored by Dr. Tour, won the entire things by going 150 nanometers in one and a half hours. That's really whipping along, right? 151 billionth of a meter in one and a half hours. That is amazing, because look at the next highest one. Swiss team went 133 nanometers in six and a half hours. They were five hours behind this guy, and everybody else gave up because they didn't get the job done. So they asked Dr. Tour, how did you do this? And he told them, here's how we did it. We built a first generation of cars that went, the, this rotor here went 1.8 revolutions per hour. That's slow as molasses, people. But their second generation of cars went 3 million RPS per second. That's how it went so fast. So how do you do that? So I'm giving you a test class. You look up there and look at the two cars, this one and this one, and see what you can tell about these two rotors here. It's the only thing that's different. Do you see that sulfur right there on this six-ring on this one, it's a five ring without that one sulfur. That's the only difference. And with that difference, it made this rotor go three million revolutions per second as opposed to 1.8 revolutions per hour. But you know what it took to get that one change? They had to start all over. It took them years to finally come up with a new one. So here's what Dr. Tour would tell you if he were here. The nano cars built by Rice University were much smaller and far less complex than the Kinesian and Dynein walkers and other molecular machines common in every living cell. He's telling you, we ain't done nothing compared to what your body does all the time. The Rice team has been working on nano cars for over 20 years. Every molecular machine in living cells is much larger, at least 10,000 times, much more complex, and much more sophisticated. All these things do is run across a gold foil. By the way, I interrupt my speech to say to you, he's trying to redo those cars so he can use them in medicine. And one of the things he's done is giving them a little drill bit on the end, and he's driving them into a cell. <laughs> and destroying that cell. Guess what kind of cells we want to destroy? Cancer cells. And it's working. So he's using modified nano cars to destroy cancer cells. Here's a taste, ladies and gentlemen. I want everybody's eyes up here and wake up. If you haven't heard anything else, I want you to hear this. Because there's a big point here. 
nanocars are nothing compared to Keynesian walkers that are working in your cells, every one of your 30 trillion cells right now. But what did it take to build a nanocar? The guys in that race said, would you write an article? Well, he did. And this was one page. So I'll give you a minute to read that. And here's the next page. And here's the article that he wrote in Tetrahedron Magazine. The date is May the 17th. That was less than a month after that race. He'd been writing on this a long time. 281 pages of supplemental characterization, of which you saw two. Are you with me, class? How much intelligence did it take to build that little nothing? That rotates on its wheels and runs around on gold foil. It's a reasonable conclusion that we know nanocars were designed by intelligent human engineers. Would you agree? They didn't come about by any natural causes. And they took intelligent engineers years. Living cells with all of their thousands of nanomachines, which are far more intricate, complex, interdependent, and full of digital information, were surely designed by God. That is not an unreasonable conclusion, class. And I'm proud to say it in a science lecture. And Anthony Flew, a professor of philosophy, atheist, author, and debater for all of his life, he debated creationists like me. Some of my friends debated him. I mean, I'm not real close to them, but they're people I know. And he was very antagonistic about belief in God. He wrote a book when he turned 80. Notice what it says. There is no, I mean, a God. And the subtitle is How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And here's what he said about it himself. It has become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of the evolution of that first reproducing organism. The enormous complexity by which the results were achieved looks to me like the work of intelligence. It now seems to me that the findings of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided materials for a new and enormously powerful argument to design. And Dr. Flew at 80 years old said, I give up. This had to be designed. I don't know why it took him that much. But at least he was honest enough at 80 years old to change his mind about something as significant as that. So can Christianity and science coincide? The Bible teaches that things were made, and that should show us God. Science shows that everywhere we look from the macroscopic to the microscopic, things look like they're made, or otherwise they were designed. So is it reasonable to believe in God in this scientific age? I say Christianity and science agree. 
it is more reasonable than it's ever been in the history of mankind. And that's my speech for tonight. And you were a good audience. You stuck with it. Thank you very much.